0: It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations
1: about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes.
0: Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextwheelcom slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get
1: so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series.
0: Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues
1: Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, the hot rock and relic the better one plus members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes
0: we also record additional pre and post show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear
1: like conversations about similarly themed movies
0: and answering listener questions from our live member chat
1: speaking of our live member chat we record almost all of our episodes in discord where members can chat right along with us live
0: members get access to other members only channels in our discord community as well on top of all that members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private next Real feed just for them that includes all the shows in the next reel family the next Real, the film board movies we like
1: sitting in the dark and more new projects on the way to top it
0: all off members don't have to listen to ads we've already eliminated those annoying dynamically inserted ads that let's face it we all hate it
1: we are listening to you
0: we love podcasting for a living and those ads help to pay the bills now we're counting on you dear listener
1: we promise we aren't going back to those terrible dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all all we ask is that you consider supporting the NextReal family of podcasts with a membership.
0: Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com
1: slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel when the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Brief encounter is over. If you die, you'd forget me. And I want to be remembered. When either of us free to love each other, there's too much in the way. There's too time we control ourselves and behave like sensible human beings there's still time
0: I'm an ordinary woman I didn't think such violent things could happen to ordinary people give us a kiss
1: I'll do no such thing. The lady might see
0: us. Come on, a quick one across the bar. Albert,
1: no, stop it. Come, there's a love. Let go of me
0: this minute. Never Albert! No. Now look at me Banbury's all over the floor.
1: I want you to promise me something. What is it? Promise me that however unhappy you are, and however much you think things over, that you'll meet me again next Thursday. Where? Outside the hospital at 12.30. All right, I promise. Hey, it's uh it's Brief Encounter time, Andy. Time for a brief encounter. It is, and it's actually not a very long movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's I mean it's it's brief I suppose by
1: today's standards. I mean they would have been it would have been the brunt of so many jokes had it been over 2 hours. <laughs> you know, they really nailed it. They really nailed it. Why are we talking about this movie?
0: This, of course, fits into our 1947 Academy Awards best screenplay writing nominees. Uh, series. Uh, Even though this was a 1945 film released in the UK, of course, over here in the States, it was released in 1946, making it eligible for that year's Oscars. And that is where it was nominated. And that is why we are talking about it now, following in line with uh, the films we've already discussed and in The King of Siam and The Best Years of Our Lives. And then, of course, after this, The Killers and Rome Open City. So, yeah, it's... uh, well written, based on Noel Coward's play, who adapted it along with Anthony Havelock Allen and uh, David Lean himself, the
1: director of the film. That Noel Noel Coward is prolific. Yeah. Have you? What? Where do you stand with Noel Coward? I like Noel Coward a lot. You know, in terms of his his stage works. You know, when I was a, a kid uh, and in college, uh, you know, my first couple of years in college, we, I went for theater. And so we spend a lot of time doing Noel Coward stuff, right? The Rat Trap and Blind Spirit and Fallen Angels. Uh, yeah, Anyway, so we've done some Noel Coward. So I have an affinity for Noel Coward's writing. And it, it always... Bums me out a little bit that Noel Coward has been adapted uh, so little so recently, right? Like we have this in, in terms of uh, his adaption. It was adapted later, uh, a brief encounter a- again in 1974. And we have two adaptations in the 2000s, Relative Values and Easy Virtue in 2000 and 2008. And then not much else. You know, everything else was in the, you know, sort of ended in the 50s and 60s, his his stuff. So I am a fan of Noel Coward. I wish we'd see more of his stuff. Uh, he is a, a he's a, a comic writer with rare wit. He was he also grew up a, a real Billy Elliot. Apparently he went to he went to school for dance and performance and has a whole bunch of of stage credits and and musical credits he wrote a number of full length musicals um eight i think eight or nine and um and so he's got some he's got some real chops is what they say in merry old london real chops
0: i uh have to admit i am very thin on noel coward um i've never done a performance in theater classes we never I, I just he never came up. Of his plays, I've never seen any. <laughs> and of Oh my his, goodness. And of his film adaptations, I think the only other one I might have seen, I I certainly have some on my list to watch, but I think the only one that I've actually seen is Easy Virtue, the Hitchcock adaptation. Yeah. So I'm a little embarrassed to say I am I have always known the name. It's a name that I've always Tied to kind of like this type of uh, British um, play and storytelling, but I've just, yeah, I have somehow managed to always miss seeing Noel Coward.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I, I'm not the first person to say this, but the the, the comparison between British Noel Coward and American Neil Simon should not be lost on you. Like, if you've seen a bunch of Neil Simon stuff, imagine it with a British accent. That's a, a very similar sort of very smart wit. Uh, the difference is Coward. a lot of coward stuff deals with the high society, right, while Neil Simon deals with a lot of the sort of working class. And so I think that's an interesting cultural comparison between those two guys. But it's the same—they they live in the same sort of literary hierarchy,
0: which I mean, th- that's definitely interesting because for this particular story, it definitely feels one more of the middle class than either the upper or lower class.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not funny.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, that's, so, yeah, that is just, a real just, departure. <laughs> yeah, this right, exactly. This feels very much like a like a, a a different type of story that Noel Coward was telling. In fact, he had written this the, the one act play called Still Life as one of ten plays that made up a series that he had called Tonight at 8.30, which were ten uh, one one-act plays that would be performed over three evenings. And this is one of the two plays of that whole series that ends on a, uh, an unhappy ending. Uh, definitely different than the film itself. Did you have a chance to read uh, this one act?
1: Uh, I have not I didn't read it for the show, but I have read all of Tonight at 830 in college. You know, we did we did go through them. I don't. My memory of it is is pretty slim. But my hunch is that it's a pretty across the bow adaptation uh, to a certain extent. I know one of the pieces that is that, you know, on the stage play, they don't leave the refreshment room as a one act like it just exists in that room at the train station and uh they talk about all these other locations but but i, I don't believe it goes anywhere it, it, and it also
0: doesn't have the structure of kind of the flashback that we have here with her voiceover to uh, you know describing as if a letter to her husband describing all of this it, it starts with actually it's interesting because in the one act it focuses. I mean, it is primarily about our two characters, Laura and Alec, but also we're definitely spending some time with Myrtle and Albert, the uh, the lady who runs the cafe, and then the the ticket guy who is always coming in. It's kind of a, a almost a, a dance between the two relationships, but. It really starts when she comes in and she got something in her eye and he's a doctor. There's nothing like having a doctor handy to get something out of your eye. I couldn't uh, help but laugh at that. Um, It does take much longer. It's uh, over the course of a year. um, And we have five scenes. And um, it's kind of a a lot of it is the same. There is a point where they end up, it, it seems like they have their... I don't know if they have their own flat or if he's just using his friend's flat for a longer period of time. But it really seems like in the play, like they actually consummate their affair. And then it ends with that sad goodbye where he has to go and and that talkative friend shows up which, of course, we have at the very beginning of the film. And that's it. And and he departs, and they never see each other again. And it's a very sad ending. And that's all we get. So um, a lot more added to this by Noel Coward, uh, along with some of these other people. So, I mean, I guess there's, let's just start there. and in, in the scope of expanding this story to kind of flesh it out, spend some more time at home, where we meet uh, Laura's husband, and we kind of get a sense of her home life, and uh, a little bit more of kind of the, the structure expanding the, the world and all that. I mean, what do you think of how the story um, is structured and how it plays out?
1: Well, uh, it's, uh, it's fine. I think the, the, the challenge that I have with it is that it is a film that amplifies such deep emotional challenges related to cultural norms and expectations. And because those have... Changed so dramatically over the years, not having them consummate the relationship gives this movie a lot less weight than I think walking away from the play and getting the feeling that they did, right? This is a movie that absolutely turns up to 11. The idea of, uh, of a extramarital infatuation that never quite reaches the weight of helping me understand why i'm watching this like it is a. I I really struggle with that piece of it like i just i didn't it's not like the movie was like i didn't like the movie it's well written it's well portrayed i just didn't get it as well as i i felt like i wanted to get it does that make any sense because they didn't consummate their affair Maybe it just didn't feel bad enough to merit making a movie about it. Like, okay, she really likes this doctor and they they met a few times and they went to movies and then they moved on with their lives because they realized what they needed to do was stay faithful to their spouses and not not really go all the way because that would have that would have undone a lot of good that they've created in the world. And frankly, because her husband was never made out to be anything other than a kind, gentle you know, of the period guy, it felt like why? You know, I I get it. You you fall in love with a handsome doctor in a train station, but really, did you? Like, sure, he was a hottie with a body, but really, you know, apart from paying for tea and a couple of tickets to the movies, what are you really getting out of it?
0: Well, you know, I but I mean, I can certainly see that perspective. Looking at it from today's eyes, and I suppose part of it is is uh, this is a story that I think would be very hard to retell in modern times without making some changes to it, because I think this is a story that really requires you to have a sense of not just kind of the social context of what was going on in the mid-40s and how this was portrayed, but also being part of the British society and kind of a a different kind of a tone to kind of like that, the, the way that uh, classes would argue and i did there was this quote by um there's an author francis gray who wrote a book about noel coward she says it is a it is a a common criticism of the play And she says that the problem is class consciousness. This is, uh, I thought, interesting. The working classes can act in a vulgar way, and the upper class can be silly, but the middle class is, or at least considers itself, the moral backbone of society, a notion whose validity Coward did not really want to question or jeopardize as the middle classes were his principal audience. And I think there's an interesting element to that with this particular story, which we get a sense of in Laura's voiceover as she's really kind of pulling herself apart by having these thoughts and wanting to wanting to go down this road but afraid to go down this road and you know every time they start thinking about going down this road she runs into an old friend or or something and so there's this constant fear of discovery and then you know after nearly consummating the relationship before getting scared off by the reappearance of the the friend who owned the flat it's like she nearly throws herself into an oncoming train. Like, uh, she's so torn by these decisions. And so I certainly can understand, you know, your perspective with this story because I think it is very stayed in the way that these characters control everything and and are, are afraid of even stepping remotely out, even mentally outside of that control. And I suppose it just boils down to, is it something that you can find a way to kind of get, you know, in step with, or is it something that's going to kind of keep you from it? For me, I found it much easier to get in step with their thinking, and I found it to be a very emotional, heartbreaking story, and I was like right along with it, but I can absolutely see why some people may have more of an issue of, of really kind of
1: connecting with this. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll tell you, I, it is interesting. The, the piece that you're talking about that I, I find really interesting is this, you know, the societal constraints issues that, that the movie is presenting and the play is presenting two people who are fundamentally good people. And they find themselves in a, an emotional situation in which they have to decide to prioritize family and marriage. Over individual happiness, right? Over the individual good, because that's not a thing. And that's what the movie is poking at is that sweet spot right between, you know, the, the good of the family and the wholesomeness of the family and the good of the individual. Is it is it okay to go to the movies with somebody else? And the movie d- does play at this, right? Like, she tells her husband she met another man, and he's like, oh, great, should we (laughs) like invite him to dinner or something, right? Like, that is okay, but what is not okay? And the movie is pushing the line, pushing us up against that line of what is okay for and maintains the strength of the family and what is not okay because it forces us to examine individual good and individual happiness. And that that stuff is interesting. The fact that it's a, a romantic... Tragedy in that they don't ever actually get to end up together is where I struggle because it's like they don't end up doing anything that is that just feels like they've adequately made the case that they've pushed toward individual good too far at the end of the movie i don't feel like that she would have done anything that her voiceover to her husband had it actually come out of her mouth uh, he wouldn't have been able to forgive and move on
0: well, I guess I mean you know <laughs> who's to say as far as how you know different couples work yeah. in their own relationships. I mean, that's, I don't think that's necessarily, I think every single relationship is going to be different in that regard. So who knows? Yeah. But I think part of the thing is, and, and I suppose this is the line with consummating an affair physically, they clearly have already consummated the affair emotionally. They've both declared their love for each other. They can't, you know, you know. It's 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 very vocal. And I think that's a big part of it. And I think There is a struggle, I think, with a lot of people in looking at a quote, affair. When does it become an affair? Is it only when it is consummated physically? Could it be consummated if they declare their love for each other and they can't stop, you know, thinking about one another? I mean, I would say sure. I mean, I think that's. Valid to say that also is an affair, and I think in a lot of situations, if she did tell her husband that, yes, I told him I love him, yes, I can't stop thinking about him, I think, sure, some men may say, okay, you know what, I forgive you, we can move past it. He's in Africa now, after all, and I think some are going to say, well, you know, tough, see you later. And I think that's, I, I think there's a big, um, it's it's a hard line for you know to just, I th- think to be too simple in how you read that.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a, I think that's a, a fair criticism and assessment I think part of the other challenge that I have though that I can't kind of quite let go of is that I never found myself exploring any charisma that I had with Celia Johnson or Trevor Howard those two people I didn't sort of fall in love with their performances and as a result I I struggled with uh, their delivery of these issues that may have better sold the the power of the emotional affair had I just liked them more. And I just never really did. I never really felt myself from the moment we met Celia Johnson's Laura Jessen in the coffee shop, I never thought, okay, I'm going to feel for this human being, right? I just never felt like I was in her performance. And I think that that goes a long way toward being able to, to really buy in to the emotional struggle that she was demonstrating enough to throw herself in front of an oncoming train. I I just never connected. I think that's a part of it.
0: Well, yeah, and I, again, I think that just kind of goes in line with a lot of these other things that that we're talking about, because for me, like, I was... Uh, invested in both characters i i found the simple elements that they found to connect with just kind of strong enough for me to buy into the way that everything grew in the case of the film only over what like four or five weeks it's very short as compared to the play where it's a year but it is one of those things where you know i sometimes there is that instant attraction and just the elements that they found that they kind of clicked with that worked for them like from the way that they both connected to um laughing at the way the cellist looked and then the the callback that we had when she ended up also being the organist at the at the cinema like there were just some great little character moments that for me just made me really enjoy these two and kind of the way I connected with them but I, again i i think this is a film with a lot of potential walls for people who um, may end up finding a lot of things that make it hard to connect with. So I, I I can understand why somebody would say,
1: I don't really connect with these characters. The movie I kept thinking of as I was watching this movie was um, A Room with a View, right, in, in terms of dealing with that the the issue of class and staid British emotional presentation of romance and exuberance of love that explodes out of characters at uh, inappropriate times, inappropriate circumstances, and the fact that there are characters that are both constrained with the same sort of societal expectations. And I think probably because I had that movie and that story in my head it made brief encounter the relationship just harder to buy in because I loved that one so much and this never reached that that point. You know, I I would I could watch Lucy Honeychurch all day long and Mrs. Jessen uh, I was I was ready to be finished when the movie was was over. Another
0: element I think with this that I think probably hit even more for British audiences is this is getting made and released like right after World War II. And, you know, men are coming back from war. And it is this struggle of reconnecting with people that you you knew before, but you, you find don't necessarily click with anymore. And so I think that there are some some strong portrayals that we get of Laura and her home life when we're seeing how she and her husband interact. And, and you can tell, like, he doesn't really listen to her. He listens, but he doesn't really listen. Like the conversation you mentioned about, uh, you know, how she met this person and he's like, yeah, I should have him over. It's like, but was he really listening? <laughs> you know, and that's what's so interesting about the way that that's portrayed. Because it's a real struggle for her to find the same connection with her husband that she easily is finding with Alec. Now, that doesn't mean if she and Alec got uh, both got divorced and married and ended up 20 years in their relationship, that they wouldn't be in the exact same place that she is now, but it's that the newness of whatever is going on here. And what I really enjoyed about the way that the film portrayed it is by the time we get all the way through everything and just the heartbreak and the devastation and she's back home and she's still lost in this world her husband like finally has this moment of realization with her and can tell and it's like you don't know does he realize what had been going on with her like does he does he think that there might have been some affair who knows what it is whatever it is it is a very accepting, loving moment of a husband realizing finally that his wife needs him and coming to comfort her and offer solace and support. And that was like, for me, like, wow, what a beautiful way to end this film that I wasn't expecting, especially because the play had just pretty much ended on that big downer. You know, that was a great moment. And again, speaking to relationships coming back together after World War II, I think it was a a strong way to
1: kind of end this story. Plus, Andy, Like this is this demonstrates the power of voiceover her voiceover throughout the course of the movie rendered her catatonic. He had to come to her aid because she was she was unable to speak by the end of the movie because her voiceover was so powerful. (laughs) Uh, Okay, voiceover. Let's talk about
0: voiceover, because clearly (laughs) voiceover is an issue uh, for you in a lot of uh, stories and, you know, for people in general. I mean, there are times when voiceover uh, can work. In this particular case, the voiceover is used as our tool to go from present day, when she's uh, at home, the day that he has left, that Alec has left, uh, she has come home, she's heartbroken, especially because this busybody talker, Dolly, ended up showing up, uh, interrupting their goodbye, and so she's kind of this extra heartbroken because of all that. So now she's home relaying in her mind this letter to her husband, walking through everything that happened and got her to the place that she is right now. Uh, we cut back into that voiceover quite a bit over the course of the story. I, I could argue that there are times that it works and there's definitely times that it isn't working. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you lean more toward the camp of the latter
1: with this one. I'm well. I'll tell you, I'm conflicted, and and I don't think we can have a, a conversation about the the voiceover without also having a conversation about the framing device, the fact that we end we begin at the end, um, and those those two things are are really hand in hand to the telling of the story because the intention of the story itself, of the way the film is made, is that she needs to be sitting in front of her husband. Having this dialogue in her head as if to him as a way to absolve her uh, or, or, you know, right, to get all this off her chest. But she hasn't yet gotten to the point where she can say it all out loud. So she has to relive it. And that's the experience we're having with her. We're reliving it in her head. And so when I imagine the movie without that, I, I don't necessarily know. Like, could you have made the movie straight? Could you have made it as a straight story just beginning when she meets the doctor and the eyeball thing happens and tell the story as a standard romance? I don't know that you could, because I feel like we have to keep coming back to the husband to remind us as the audience that he's still in the picture, right? He's still somebody who's there that we need to care about. We need to care about his position. And what would he say if she was actually opening her mouth? Do you have a take on that? I mean, you bring up a very valid point with this
0: type of structure. There are are many times that we have talked about on this show that we've talked about just in other movies where we're like, they have this framing device. And we've talked about it on on our our favorite site, uh, tvtropes.org, as far as this type of bookend where we're getting the end of the film at the beginning as a framing device, and then we're dipping back into it over the course of the story. There are so many times it doesn't work, but by bringing this in, structured this way, I do think you're right. We're getting more time spent with the husband, more sense of her in a way where she wants to be open. She wants to kind of tell him all of this stuff. It's almost like this final getting it all off of her chest, but as you said, it's like she's preparing to get it all off of her chest, and she has to go through it again to get there. It ends up adding extra emotional weight to all of this, especially because we also are in this context of Kind of understanding why it's happening because her husband isn't listening at the point of the story you know we really don't get that change in him until that final moment.
1: Yeah so to that end I, I think it works I, I do I do think it works as much as it it strains me to say it out loud. I think we have to have the voiceover it's her just contemplating the impact of her actions on her family and social standing like she is litigating it for us but more for herself. That has to be what effectively leads us to her decision to, you know, do what she did and let the doctor, Dr. Hound Dog go. So, I, yeah, I think it works. And I, yeah, I regret that I have that opinion, but I do. I, I think the voiceover plays. What I don't like about it, though, in terms of the framing device, just just as a quick addition, I wonder if there would be a different way to introduce us to them as a couple without introducing us to them in sad mode like i i wonder if you introduce us to them like with just her and dolly like it's okay for her to be sad but we we the first time we meet this couple there's no energy to it like it it it's the the at a very emotional low point at the beginning of the movie and uh i a dolly as annoying as that character is supposed to be thank god she's there because she is the light on the screen she's the electricity the spark that that gets me into the movie i it's hard to start a movie at such an emotional low point for these two characters,
0: that's so weird. I I totally uh, didn't read it that way. I I could feel the tension palpably uh, from the screen through that whole opening. So um, yeah, it's just it's funny how how uh, differently <laughs> we could read something. Yeah. Um, okay, but but to your point about some issues with this voiceover, there were at least a couple moments that I did notice that I ended up having some questions as to. The structure of it, and if there were times they could have made it better. One, and this was just a moment that I noticed that it dropped into voiceover. It's when they had left the restaurant where they had had the champagne and everything, and he says, I want to get, I, I have a surprise for you. And he runs outside, and then only uh, to find that as she's waiting there, one of her old friends, along with her friend, had also been in the restaurant, had stepped out to get their coats, and they all run into each other. While all of this is happening, instead of actually having just the scene play out, it's being told to us, relayed through the voiceover, but there's nothing about the voiceover in that scene that isn't something that could have just been said by the characters. So that was a moment yeah, that we're actually looking at. <laughs> yeah, so that was one of those moments where I'm like, you didn't necessarily need the voiceover. You We could have just had the scene play out, and we would have been fine you know? For sure. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, the other thing that we run into, which, and this is just a a challenge in very much making the story from Laura's perspective, and specifically from her perspective as she's relaying all of this from the future, as she's kind of reminiscing, we have one prominent important scene between Alec and his friend after she has left the apartment. And she's terrified because this person may have you know seen her. In, and in her mind, the two of them got to talking about oh, women and all this fun stuff. But in reality, it's a scene of Alec talking to his friend and his friend discovering the scarf. And it's an interesting conversation where Alec is it seems not really necessarily welcome anymore. His friend is very kind and everything, but it's like he's not necessarily welcome anymore to kind of use his flat. And his friend kind of tells him he's not surprised. I'm just a little disappointed, whatever. And it was kind of an interesting little scene, especially for a friend who's like calls himself so worldly and everything. It was interesting to see what way that played out. But. That is a scene that is 100% from Alex's perspective. I suppose there's a point in time he could have relayed that conversation to Laura so that she knew that that is what had happened after the fact. But it never really, even when she brings it up, it doesn't necessarily kind of play that way. And so that was one of those moments where I'm like, "Eh, this is is not really
1: fitting the way that the story is getting structured. That is an extraordinarily good point, Andy. And I hadn't even caught it because at the time I was so invested in how well the scene was written in terms of uh, of conveying subtext when that those two guys are talking to each other. They you can imagine like the hidden figures punching each other in the face, but they're doing it with these daggers of words. And when he finally says, you know, when he finally hands over the key, the extra key that is punctuation on an extraordinarily well-crafted set bit of dialogue to convey how that relationship has changed and i was lost in it i thought it was just fantastic i didn't even catch that there's no way she would have known (laughs) about that conversation because she had run out the back door oh my god yeah such a good point it doesn't even belong in the movie the way it is and yet it's one of my favorite scenes right right Interesting also that
0: that leads us to a moment that really speaks to women's roles in society at this time. She runs through the rain, she ends up in this empty park where the rain has stopped, but she sits there and she's like damn it all, I'm going to smoke in public or what, you know. <laughs> I'm like wow, this is like it's so funny that in society at the time it was so frowned upon. Or you, you definitely looked like one of the lower class as a woman if you chose to smoke in public. And then she was petrified that the cop saw her and was like, "What is he going to think of me? I'm going to have to walk away casually so that he doesn't think I know he's staring at me and he assumes things like it's just
1: like oh <laughs> no. my gosh, oh my gosh, the I'm social so mores much trouble for for existing at night on a bench, <laughs> yeah."
0: Uh, yeah, it's just gender roles, bad news. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so interesting the way that, uh, you know, uh, personalities really, uh, shine and just like all these social mores (laughs) come out in these little moments like that.
1: Yeah, I, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, that stuff was was really, really great. And, and also, it leads to for all of our principal characters, like, what does it mean to be a respectable person, right? When the cops are triggered by you sitting at night, and potentially smoking in the rain like that, that is a is that because you are not a, a respectable person? Are you some sort of a street person? Or what? what is it that the cop is actually looking for? You know, what does it mean for these two to have to sneak around a, a relationship between men and women? It's, they keep going to the theater. And is that because they both really love movies? Or is it because it's dark and they don't need to necessarily be seen together? Um, all of those sort of circumstantial questions, I think, are really interesting in, in what is, is portrayed on screen between the two of them. Um, And uh, so that that is all aces. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, very interesting. We
0: haven't really talked about uh, our fair director, David Lean, and his kind of uh, role in writing, directing this. This is definitely um, a smaller film of his. You know, this is before he goes on to. I mean, really about a decade later when he really kind of kicks into high gear with kind of the big epic sorts of storytelling uh, films that he was doing. I mean, this is a very small, quiet, uh, intimate film with some incredible, incredible just like uh, directorial touches throughout. I mean, what did you think
1: of David
0: Lean and what he uh, what he was doing here?
1: Well, that's why. I want, to, I want to celebrate the movie because as much as I didn't really dig the relationships and I didn't quite get how bad it was because it's dated, my God, this movie is gorgeous to look at. It is beautifully shot. Robert Krasker on uh, cinematography, like in partnership with with Sir David Lean, like I feel like everything is so meticulously presented, every angle, the glorious silvers in the train smoke. Like, I just thought it was luscious. I would crawl inside it if I could. Like, it's just it's telling this this conflicted romance story with touches of of noir. And I was just lost in it. I was lost in it. I thought it was great taking. Very simple sets and making them super interesting to look at, right? Especially the contrast between going inside small spaces, crowded spaces, the the refreshment room to the apartment to the small rooms to the street, the wet streets at night. To uh, you know, I, I just thought it was I thought it was glorious. Not just in the way that it looked. I mean, it was gorgeous,
0: like incredible black and white cinematography throughout. You can see where. Uh, you know, Krasker would work so well with Carol Reed a few years later in the third man. I mean, absolutely. Kind of like, sure. That. It, it, even as a love story, this feels very noir, very expressionist in just the shadows and the pools of light and everything just, I mean, it is just gorgeous. But also you have some fantastic kind of subjective camera, Moments throughout this. There's one fantastic moment, like the way that he would drop everything to black in a frame except for usually Laura's face, like when she's on the train uh, trying to rest and it drops to voiceover as as Dolly drones on and on. And she kind of opens her eyes and starts looking around and stuff. And you realize, oh, she's in her mind because everything else has gone to black. Very, very cinematic. And that happens a couple of times. Another incredibly beautiful time is when the two of them are in the, I don't know what you'd call it in the land of train stations, but kind of like the underpass that you take to get to the other platform
1: where you go under the tracks. I think in the land of train stations, that's what you call it. There's a whole land of train stations. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, But there's that another pool of dark
0: as the two of them walk through this, uh, this underpass. And as they are coming toward us, the black shadows of the bottom right corner, it's just all solid black. And suddenly... Laura appears out of the darkness in her chair at home, sitting there as if she's watching this whole thing play out. And then the rest of the image dissolves and we're actually in her, um, in the sitting room at home with her husband. So cool. But just God, like, so wow, cool. what an incredible moment. And then my favorite of all of them is at the end when we get the shot when she comes running out. As uh, as he his train is departing, and this is after having seen it play from Dolly's kind of perspective at the opening. Now we're in Laura's perspective at the end. She comes running out and as the train is coming by, the camera slowly tilts until it's fully Dutch angle as the train whips by and the wind blows her and you can just see the devastation and the heartbreak on her face it stays in that tilted angle and then she kind of goes back in and it just really kind of gives us this shift in perspective with her. I mean, it's just like, Oh my God, just like the way that the camera got in, got me inside her head in that moment. was just, it was just spot on perfect. I was like, God, this is why David Lean is such an amazing director. Just little things like that,
1: that just really brought this to life. He just has such an ability to, to chronicle visually transformation of characters over time, right? Like, that is what this whole story is about. It's about these people who are being conflicted uh, or being in, in, introduced to this romance with one another and their conflict, conflict, their conflict uh, <laughs> is what leads them uh, to make a significant change in their lives. And it happens to be one that leads to immediate regret and pain and all of that in their departure. But it is the journey of that conflict. I could totally see how this guy goes on and tells story of massive, individual change in River Kwai and *Chivago* and Lawrence of Arabia. And the fact I already mentioned uh, E.M. Forster adaptation, A Room with a View. This was his last film. It was a passage to India. Like like it's, it is like He knows how to tell very big stories, but you can see exactly his attention to character in this very, very small story, too. And I, I think that's the reason to celebrate him um, all the live long day, Andy. All the live long day in the world of trains
0: it's just uh yeah just an absolutely beautiful film and the black and white just it just really sings it's just it's perfect how beautiful it all is and it just feels
1: right for the way that the story is told he's a guy who has an ear for for film too right and and the fact that um you know he he so adeptly uses uh rachmaninoff's piano concerto number two um which is a a long piece but many of the themes are quite famous and uh he uses it really really well throughout this film and um i don't know if you you play the piano have you ever been challenged with a a version of the rock two i have never been enough of a pianist
0: <laughs> to tackle any rock Rachmaninoff, it is astounding to me to watch people play it because it's uh, largely, like, so big and fast, and, like, there's just a lot of stuff going on in it. Like, I always think with rock, I always go to shine, the fantastic Scott Hicks film. And that's the, that's the third concerto in that film, which is insane. So that's generally what I think of when I think of Rachmaninoff is like, if you are
1: insane and a pianist, then
0: jump in. But that's uh, not for me.
1: Personal story, my grandmother was a concert pianist and she was extraordinary. And she would come over to our house at, when I was a child and she would play through Rachmaninoff's piano concertos. And uh, the Rock 2, the Rock 3, th- they were kind of regular refrains. And I used to lay on my back underneath the piano and listen to her play. And the thing that's extraordinary is that her hands were not big enough to actually achieve the technical like prowess of the piece. So there were a lot of shortcuts. When you later hear how Rock played rock, right, and you see the fact that his hands were so giant— that he could achieve chord structures with a single hand that require two hands for normal humans, uh, that you you get a sense of, of why these are, become important pieces. They're beautiful. R- Rachmaninoff had a real sense of cinema when he was writing his, his orchestral and, and concertos. But uh, they are emotional and beautiful and deep, and they also happen to be some of the most technically difficult pieces to play. So I love this piece. I love... So so much about it, and it was like this. This happened in this movie, and I didn't even know that I was going to hear some Rachmaninoff in this movie, and and to hear it used so well, I thought was was a real triumph. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm not
0: familiar. Like, I don't even know if I've really listened to Rachmaninoff outside of outside of like when it's played in films. I, I mean, I'm sure I've heard various pieces throughout, but I, I've always enjoyed just the the strength of the pieces and you're right it fits like there is this it feels like music that is taking this emotional journey and that's why i think it fits so well in this film it just it feels very much of this kind of fits the story of these two
1: yeah for sure
0: i know you weren't a fan of our two leads here uh, celia johnson and trevor howard um are you have you seen much else of them Is there anything in this film that that did work for you of the two of them?
1: Have I seen anything else of them? Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) I haven't given her much thought. I don't think so. Is there something? What is the most popular thing that you think I should have seen? She hasn't done all that much? Yeah,
0: I am less familiar with Celia Johnson. You know, she is, I I found her to be a really compelling person actress in this film like there's something that she does really well in portraying kind of like that the quiet british reserve and kind of the the uh, trying to lock her emotions down like i enjoyed her quite a bit trevor howard i've definitely seen a lot more um over the course of his career um you know he's just one of those faces and i'm looking through his filmography trying to remember what it is well of course he was in the third man a few years later um, around the world in 80 days. He's in that Mutiny on the Bounty. Oh, that's that's mm-hmm. where I know him the most from, because he's that would be uh, Captain Bly in that one. He was on Vine Ryan's Express, the Charge of the Light Brigade, Ryan's Daughter, again, with uh, David Lean. Yeah, he's definitely somebody who's uh, been in lots and lots of stuff. Superman. He's the first elder in Superman. Guilty! <laughs> he's one of our, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, is also the Great Muppet Caper. So all right, but who who wasn't in that? So so he has real chops. Yeah, is what you're saying. He is just he's one of those people who's been in a lot of things. And another film made this year that also um, was in competition for the Oscars, Green for Danger. Have you seen it? I haven't, it? but I just know in looking on my awards research that he was in that one. I remember the name popping up. So that's what I'm curious to see. The title is a reference to the color coding used on the gas canisters used by anesthetists. It's a British thriller detective film.
1: It seems like red should be the danger color. It feels like green for danger is problematic. Well, in anesthetists it makes you sick. Like, you know, green face, I don't know. I'm just Oh, so vomit vomit emoji is what you're yeah, saying. exactly. Okay. Maybe they should I, I, would that emoji had just exist, existed in 1945. I think that would have changed <laughs> all of our symbol z- symbology. Yes, absolutely. Dan Brown's stuff would have been very different. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh <geez. Okay>. oh <laughs> my gosh. Just, <laughs> Why does this 1800s mason tablet have the vomit emoji all over it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay.
0: All right. Well, we'll be right back, but first, our credits. <laughs>
1: next reel is a production of true story fm engineering by andy nelson music by the david roy collective oriole novella and eli Catlin. andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d numbers.com box office mojo.com imdb.com and wikipedia.org find the show at true story.fm and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews please consider doing that for our show
0: That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout-out. Buying shirts from the slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs.
1: Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo.
0: We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. <laughs>
1: the one from National Lampoon's Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular?
0: <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusty's taking trips to Europe?
1: We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch.
0: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com
1: slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right, Andy, this is another one of those at a time when people had to get a lot out of their playwright dollar. (laughs) <laughs> Let's talk right. about other adaptations.
0: Uh, it was, uh, you know, obviously it's a one-act play, so there have been countless performances over over the years, but uh, it was adapted a few times for radio, not just even as the one-act play, but also as the film version. Noel Coward had a hand in some of those adaptations in the 40s, um, all the way up into 2009, there was a, a, the BBC did a 75th anniversary recording of this. So definitely something that has been uh, told over time. There was a TV version in the 60s with Diana Shore and Ralph Bellamy, and then another version in 1974 on Hallmark Hall of Fame with Richard Burton and Sophia Loren. That one was not received well at all, and a lot of the reason was because a lot of your complaints, where people feel like you know, especially in the seventies, it's like, why are these people not doing anything with this? Why is this? Why is this so serious? And so that kind of fell into the reason why it uh, didn't uh, work very well. The play, there was a an adaptation of this film. Wait a minute. <laughs> also <laughs> what? made yes. Yes, they they adapted the move, they, they adapted the the screenplay for Brief Encounter into a play called Brief Encounter. Haley Mills uh, was actually the the first to perform it in '96, and uh, before it went to the West End in 2000 with Jenny Seagrove then more theater versions, and eventually, of course, an opera version. And where would we be if I didn't say that there also was a a version in India, Meg Hummelhar?
1: Uh, How to do during award season, apropos
0: of this series? That's right. Part of the reason we're here, again, this film was released in the States, in the U.S., uh, in the States and in the U.S., in 1946. So at the Oscars that year, it was nominated for Best Writing Screenplay. David Lean, Anthony Havelock Allen, and Ronald Neem were nominated, but it lost, as we've already discussed, to... The Best Years of Our Lives. David Lean was nominated for Best Director, but also lost to William Wyler's uh, Best Years of Our Lives. And Celia Johnson was nominated for Best Actress, but lost to Olivia de Havilland in to Each His Own. At the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, Johnson won Best Actress. At the National Board of Reviews, it won by being part of the Top 10 Films of the Year. And, of course, at the Cannes Film Festival, it did win the big grand prize. So, uh, you know, it did... Okay, three wins, three other nominations, all told, uh, you know, well enough received.
1: Okay, but then how did it do at the box office? I found an article in
0: Variety at the time actually saying that the days of the cheap British films are over, which I thought was funny (laughs) for this one. Say, expressing that this film was an example as it is a modest film that still costs nearly a million dollars to produce. I actually had another source that this cost 1.4 million or 23.4 million in today's dollars. Either way, it's shocking, apparently. Um, this movie opened November 13th, 1945 in London, then November 6th, 1945 in the rest of the UK. It didn't open here in the States until August 24th, 1946. I couldn't find anything as to how much it made domestically, but it did say it grossed about 62000 internationally. I can't imagine that that is all, but I suppose it's possible. Regardless, I can't provide an adjusted profit per finish minute without the rest of the info, so that is where we will leave
1: this one. A sad apthom hole on the spreadsheet.
0: Yeah, especially because, like, it does say that this film was the 21st most popular film at the British box office of the year. And it was a, quote, notable box office attraction. So, obviously, it did well. It's just, I just don't have all of that. So,
1: there it sits. All right. All right. Well, I'm glad it's on the list. I'm glad we saw it just, if if for no other reason, than it was gorgeous to look at. And uh, that David Lean, I think he's... I think he's really got a past in this business. <laughs> he,
0: You know, this is a, one of the holes that I've had in his uh, filmography corp for quite some time. I really connected with it. I'm glad that we discussed it. I'm glad it fit into this series. And for me, you know, I, it certainly is one that I'd be curious to revisit uh, down the road because I enjoyed it quite a bit. All right. Well, I, I say we set him up for next week. Yeah, well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Robert's Max, The Killers.
1: You've been asking for it lately.
0: Hey! Any objections?
1: Yeah. You touch me and you won't live till
0: morning. You're not meeting them tomorrow.
1: are I sweet? Most of them turned out to be unhealthy. The farmer died from natural causes. The Swede and Blinky Franklin were both killed. Do you know who else was in the gang? You were. Reach for that note. kick your brains out. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
0: You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
1: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
0: The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show.
1: In season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them.
0: We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The
1: 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of I Am, based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The
0: 1952 Cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel.
1: So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater,
0: A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball,
1: The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter. Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black. And Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting.
0: Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals.
1: Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. Letterboxd. Andy, um, what, what are you going to do? How many stars are you going to give this movie? Because I feel like... All I need to know is that I'm giving them slightly fewer than you. I have a feeling that's where we're going to be landing with this one. I uh,
0: really connected with these characters, really enjoyed it. I'm going to give it—I'm torn between four and four and a half on this one. I'm going to do four for now, but it is one that could go up to four and a half
1: on future watches. I am so glad to hear you say four because my instinct said three stars. I'm going to give this right down the middle for me. Three stars.
0: Three stars. I figured that's about yep. where you were going to land yeah. with this one. So. I'll
1: even give it a heart for the
0: direction and, and cinematography. Okay. Three and a half yeah. and a heart is where we will land over on the Next Reel's Letterboxd page, which you can find at letterbox.com slash reel. So what did you think about Brief Encounter? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
1: Letterboxd it, Andy. As Letterboxd always doeth. What do you got? Are you going high?
0: Low? Middle? I, I went high. I went with five star that ties into a previous series we have discussed on this very show. Okay, go ahead. What do you got? Five stars by
1: Marcissus. Baby, you are going to miss that train. Brief. Brief. I've got one that's also brief, but less brief than yours. It's from, uh, courtesy, first of all, of uh, uh, Brian Blake in the chat room, who posted this has become my favorite review of this movie. And I th- Wait, the chat room? What? Where's the chat room? Oh, Andy, the chat room, you know, the chat room. Members can listen to the can listen to the show live and chat along with us in Discord. And that's where Brian is. If you want to be like Brian, we should new shirt. Be like Brian <laughs> and and chat with us uh, as we record these shows. You can send letterbox reviews that might get picked up by Yours Truly. And this one is from Brendan O'Hare who says four stars. If you're like me, You probably thought the two main characters weren't going to talk about Donald Duck at any point, but they did. (laughs) (laughs) How could that be less than five stars? If you have that keen an observation, how could you take a star away? If anything, they need a sixth star. Uh, You you need to give a six-star review for that four-star review, Pete. (laughs) That's exactly right. Thank you so much, Letterboxd. Hashtag, be like Brian.